Genesis chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Now, when you really believe something, it changes how you act. So if I told you this building was on fire and you all said to me, preach it, Dave, we believe you and then stayed where you were, I might start to think, do you really believe what I'm telling you? Because seriously, this building's on fire. Yeah, okay, okay. I think I would doubt whether you really believed what you say you believe. Now, if you're a Christian, it should change what you do. The right response to such good news is obedience to Jesus. The thing is, I fail to obey Jesus almost constantly. I think you can trace back my failure to two predominant wrong ways of thinking. So the first is, I don't really believe that God is good. 
I look at what he's asking me to do and inwardly I conclude that rule's just there to keep something good from me. You're trying to keep something good from me because you're not really good. You don't really have my best interests at heart, so I choose to disobey. But then I read the Bible and I remember that God is rich in mercy, that he is quick to forgive, slow to anger and quick to forgive. I know that I'm saved by faith and not by works. So then I begin to wrongly conclude, well, actually, it doesn't really matter what I do because, well, God's going to forgive me because that's what he always does. That's who he is. I take his forgiveness for granted and I disobey him because of that. I'm ashamed to say I swing back and forth between these two wrong ways of thinking. Now, part of the problem is when I make one of the mistakes, I tell myself that the answer is the other mistake and I just swing back and forth between the two. The truth is that I need a way of seeing that both God is good and what we do matters. As we explore Genesis chapter 22 this morning, my hope is that we would see the very heart of the Christian message, a message which centres around a God who loves us more than we could ever imagine and a passage which gives us a deep motivation to walk in his ways. We'll begin by exploring the story that we find in Genesis 22. Then we'll see how this specific story points to the big story of the Bible. And then finally, we'll think about how this big story plays into our own personal stories. So the story itself. Over the last month, we've worked our way through the story of Abraham. Well, this morning we arrive at Genesis chapter 22 and in many ways, all that we've looked at so far is leading up to the story that we find in today's passage. This metaphorical and literal mountaintop in Abraham's life. Now, before we begin examining this story, I feel I need to lay my cards on the table. I found this week really difficult. You see, on the one hand, this passage points us to the heart of the gospel in a way which you will struggle to find more clearly demonstrated in the Old Testament. And yet in it, God asks something of Abraham which is almost unbelievable. Understanding why God would ask Abraham to do something so difficult has really troubled me this week. The more time I've spent in this passage, the more I'm convinced that actually that's the way we should approach this story. It's shocking that God would ask a father to sacrifice his son. Well, this morning, rather than trying to explain away how shocking that is or rationalise it in some way, I'd ask you to step into the story with me. Don't sanitise it or write it off as these are primitive people. This is a story about real people experiencing real events, shocking events. Verse 1 of chapter 22 begins, sometime later. Now the author begins here by rooting us in the events that have already taken place in Abraham's life. Back in chapter 12 of Genesis, we saw God call Abraham to leave his father's household, to travel to a land that God will give him, where he promises him children, land and blessings. Specifically, that one of Abraham's descendants would bless the entire world. 
the thing is, all of these blessings are tied up in Abraham having children. But Abraham and his wife are old, like really old. <laughs> and the thing is, they don't have children at this point. They take all these other things and they try to take things into their own hands. So Abraham actually sleeps with one of his female servants and has a child named Ishmael. But God tells Abraham, no, the blessing's not going to come through Ishmael. It's going to come through a son which will be born to Sarah, your wife, a son that you are to call Isaac. Now, when it looks like the promises of God are simply outside the realms of possibility, Sarah is 90 years old and Abraham is 100. Miraculously, they have a son named Isaac. All of God's blessings for his people are tied up in the descendants of Isaac. So to really understand the story that we find in Genesis 22, we need to see that Isaac is not just a son that they've waited their whole lives to have. He is the promise of hope for the future. Now, knowing all that makes the remainder of verses 1 and 2 almost unbelievable. It continues, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. You can imagine the blood draining from Abraham's face as he hears this. God goes to great lengths to identify exactly who it is that he's telling him to sacrifice. Your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. God knows that Abraham has more than one son, but this is the only son born to Sarah, and this is the only son in which the promises of God are all tied up in. It's hard to think of anything more difficult that God could have asked of Abraham. Now, Abraham's been through some really tough stuff in the last 10 chapters, but I'm sure all those trials must have seemed as nothing compared to what God was asking now. Verse 3 continues, Early the next morning, Abraham got up. Now, a lot of people suggest that this is testimony to Abraham's unwavering faith in God. Perhaps they're right, but actually I think it's just because he couldn't sleep. Have you ever gone to bed knowing that the next day is going to be really difficult? Well, just imagine Abraham trying to go to sleep that night. All the questions going through his head. Imagining, thinking, how on earth am I going to do this? What am I going to say to Isaac? So many questions he must have had before God. I'm sure that one thing that didn't happen much that night was sleep. I'm sure that at the first sign of light, Abraham thought, well, I'm awake, so I might as well just get up. Verse 3 continues. Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Now, there's something else to notice here in this verse. Abraham was a wealthy man with an awful lot of servants. He could have had countless other people do those tasks for him, but he chose to do them himself. It's almost like he felt like he had to do this on his own. I can imagine him there early in the morning, wielding an axe outside, 
you can almost picture him with tears in his eyes as he's bringing the axe down, cutting the wood, saying, why are you asking this of me, God? Why would you do this? Taking out the frustration that he's feeling on those lumps of wood. It gets even more difficult. The place God is calling him to make this sacrifice is three days' journey away. For three days, he had to travel with the heaviest burden a father could carry. What would you talk about on the journey with your son? I wonder how many times on that journey he considered turning back. The text jumps ahead and finally they arrive in verse 5. It said, He said to his servant, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now there's another word which is striking in this verse. We, we will come back to you. Is this Abraham unable to tell his servants what's really going on or is this a hint of hope? We don't know how old Isaac is in this passage. There are lots of different ideas about it. We know he was somewhere between five and 30 but we don't know exactly how old he was, but we do know he was, hev- he was big enough and old enough to carry a heavy load on his back and he was also old enough to know that something was missing. Look at verse 7. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now I don't know again if Abraham is holding out hope that God will provide a substitute sacrifice or whether he just can't bring himself to say, you're the sacrifice, Isaac. When they arrive, Abraham builds the altar and lays the wood. And then verse 9 says, he bound his son, Isaac, and lay him on the altar on top of the wood. Now let's not forget Abraham is a hundred years old and Isaac is big enough to carry a substantial amount of wood. So presumably this couldn't have been done by force. We don't know what was said before this, but everything in the text indicates that Isaac willingly lay down on the altar. Just imagine how intense and utterly overwhelming this was for both Abraham and for Isaac. What, what follows happens almost in slow motion. Verse 10 says, Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. The unthinkable is about to happen. A father is about to kill his own son. Whether you're a parent or not, this should horrify you. This is perhaps one of the darkest moments in the Old Testament. But then comes verse 11, crashing onto the page like a ray of light. The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Now in my last job, I have seen people drop knives pretty quickly when told to do so. (laughs) But I am pretty sure at this moment in history, Abraham set the world record for the fastest knife drop ever. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. 
Abraham turns round, and I don't think a man has ever been happier to see a goat. (laughs) Can you imagine how he embraced Isaac as he took the ropes from him? God provides a substitute sacrifice, and Isaac's life is spared. Abraham calls that place Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord will provide. Abraham didn't know it, but this whole encounter was a test. God had no intention of allowing Abraham to kill Isaac. As a result of this test, Abraham is shown with great clarity that God will provide. But it still leaves that question. Was it really worth it? Do the ends really justify the means? I mean, surely people have suffered PTSD from far less traumatic events. Imagine Isaac going for counselling many years later, reliving the time he was bound by his father, laid on an altar and came within moments of being killed by his own dad. Is knowing that God will provide really enough to warrant that level of trauma? Well, it all depends on what you think God was providing. If all he did here was provide a goat, then this seems cruel. But what if instead he gave Abraham and Isaac an exclusive insight into the Father's plan for salvation? Not just for Isaac, but for all of God's people. What if he showed them in a way never before seen the big story of the Bible? And that's our second point, the big story of the Bible. You see, these events point to something bigger something deeper. They point to the very heart of the gospel. I said earlier that I've really struggled with this passage because God asked Abraham to do something unthinkable that seems to make no sense unless, unless you see it points to something unthinkable that God was willing to do to rescue his people. At the heart of the Bible is a father willing to sacrifice his son so that those who would put their trust in him could live. Did you notice how in verse 8, Abraham says God himself will provide the lamb? But then in 13, we see that it's a goat that God provides. Well, I think that this is yet another reminder that this story is not primarily about God providing a substitute for Isaac. Nearly 2,000 years later, when John the Baptist first sees Jesus, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The events of Genesis 22 are pointing us forward to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who two centuries later would be sacrificed on exactly the same mountain. If ever there was a reason to believe that the individual stories of the Bible pointed to the big story of the Bible, it was that the place where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac is exactly the same place that Jesus was crucified. In the Gospel, we see clearly how much Jesus suffered. But here, more than anywhere else in the Bible, we see that the Father suffered as well. A vivid picture is painted
a vivid picture is painted of what the father is willing to do, of how unthinkable it is that a father would offer to sacrifice his son. In Genesis 22, Abraham had the awful task of journeying three days in the full knowledge of what was going to happen to his son. I still can't imagine how difficult that must have been, but it is nothing compared to what God had to endure. The triune God agreed on a rescue mission in eternity past. Before the world was even created, God the Father knew what he was going to have to ask of his only son, the son he loved, Jesus Christ. In Genesis 22, Isaac had to carry the wood that he was to be burnt upon up the mountain. Jesus had to carry wood up the same mountain, but this time not wood for a fire, a cross to be crucified upon. Like Isaac, Jesus could have disobeyed his father, but he chose to willingly lay down his life. But here's the key difference between the two stories. For Isaac, a substitute was provided. But for Jesus, there could be no substitute because he was the substitute. He went to the cross in the place of every person who would put their trust in him. He went to the cross for me. He died so that I could live. I've often made the mistake of thinking that living a great life is about knowing a lot of different things. Increasingly, though, God is teaching me that's just not true. You don't need to know a lot of things to live a good life. You need to know one thing really well. I am so loved and valued that the God of the universe, the King of Kings, gave his only son so that I could be forgiven and adopted into his family. There is no greater price in all the universe that could have been paid for my forgiveness. To finish this morning, I want us to consider a few ways in which this big story of the Bible intersects with our stories, what difference it actually makes to our lives. Well, firstly, this big story speaks directly into the problem that I raised at the beginning. I shared that I often disobey God, either because I doubt his goodness or because I take his mercy for granted. Well, this, in this big story of the Bible, we're pointed to a God who loves us so much that he is willing to send his son, his only son whom he loves, to die in our place. There is nothing greater or more valuable that could have been paid for our redemption. It shows me beyond the shadow of a doubt that I am loved. It means that God's rules can't be there to keep something good from me because he's already given me the very most valuable thing that he has. His only son. We can trust and obey God because we know that he is good. When life is hard and we don't understand what's happening, we can look to the cross where we can see with certainty that we are loved by the God of the universe. But what if I start to take that love for granted? What if I begin to abuse his grace? Well, once again, this big story reminds me that although I receive my salvation as a free gift, 
it cost God more than I could ever imagine. When we really understand this, the thought of taking that grace for granted should make us feel sick to our stomachs. The price God paid was so high because my sins were so serious and the consequence of my sins was so dreadful. At its core, sin is not just rule breaking, it is a heart which is in complete rebellion against God. You see, sin separates us from God, it enslaves us and ultimately it leads to death. Jesus didn't bear the unbelievable weight of our sin so that we could continue to live as we were. He did it to set us free. He did it so that we could have life and have it to the full. When we see the great cost of his sacrifice, we'll want to walk in his ways. Not to earn anything, but in response to what he's already done for us. Secondly, this big story of the Bible changes where we find our identity. I wonder where you find your value. The world tells us that our value is wrapped up in what we do, in what we have, in what we look like and lots of other things. I often tried to find my identity in my work. I wanted to people think that I'm good at what I do. I wanted to see people to think that my job mattered because I want to matter. The big story of the Bible tells us our identity, our worth and our value should be defined in one way. You are the one God loves enough to send his son to die in your place. That means I don't have to try and find value in the wrong places. I don't have to labour for the affirmation of man because the cross shows me I am supremely loved by the one who reigns supreme. Thirdly, Abraham wonderfully models what our response to the big story of the Bible should be. When we truly grasp what God has in store for those he loves and what it cost him to secure that, we can hold on to the things that we have now lightly. When we see that God laid down his life for us, we should have a willingness to lay down our lives for him. Not begrudgingly or reluctantly, but in the full knowledge and assurance that anything we lay down for him is nothing compared to what we've already received. Abraham was willing to lay down his most treasured possession. Are we willing to do the same? Is what we believe about God evident in the way that we live? I think one of the reasons that this story is so famous is because we love grand gestures, mighty acts of faithfulness, because we hope that when the time comes, we will be able to do the same thing. We'll be willing to lay down anything God asks us to. But we need to see that this big act of obedience didn't just come out of nowhere. Abraham approached it with countless small acts of obedience. He got out of bed. He saddled his donkey, he chopped up the firewood, he gathered his servants, he journeyed, he climbed the mountain. All of those things, all those small acts of obedience, led to that big act of obedience. Are you living a life which is full of small acts of obedience? 
Are you reading the Bible and striving to do what it says? Are you spending time in prayer each day? Are you choosing his ways over your ways? These small acts of obedience may well be preparing you for your next mountaintop moment. I'll finish here. Abraham wasn't willing to sacrifice his son to earn something from God. He did it in response to what God had already promised. Abraham is not the hero of this story. God is. Do you know how much he loves you? For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only son, whom he loved, so that those who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray.